Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hello. Hey, Max. Who's on the show this week? This week on the show is uh, Pablo Torre. It's his second time on the show. He came on in 2016, if you can believe it. And uh, at the time, Pablo, who's a uh, sports journalist, was making a transition from writing to TV. He had written for Sports Illustrated, then ESPN the magazine, and he was starting to appear more and more on television. And the conversation he and I had six years ago was about that transition. Since then, Pablo fully transitioned to TV. He got his own TV show on ESPN called High Noon. It was hosted with Bomani Jones, and it launched, it lived, uh, it died. And uh, we talked about that. And now he has transitioned again into podcasting. He is the host of ESPN Daily, ESPN's daily podcast. And so we talked about all of those transitions and what his relationship is to writing now and the uh, vast array of content that he has put out into the world and what his relationship to all of it is. Is this a tie-in with uh, the NFL season starting or just uh, beautiful serendipity? You would think that I would have asked some questions about the NFL season starting, but instead I uh, just asked him about, you know, his interior life. So this is not a tie-in with the NFL season, which started uh, over the last couple of weeks, but, uh, you know, not a bad time to do a, do a little sports on the program. It's been, it's been a while since we've uh, covered sporting life, uh, so I look forward to this one. The show is produced in partnership with Vox Media. We thank them. Here's Max with Pablo Torre. Hi, Pablo. Hello, Max. How are you, sir? I'm good. I'm good. Um, we were trying to figure out the last time I talked to you in this specific context. Yeah. This podcast. And uh, what, what did we find out? Uh, it's like six and change. That's uh, a lifetime. I, I, I don't even remember what I was like at that point, truly, but I'll try. You were wide-eyed. <laughs> you were excited about life. You had a joie de vie. Mm, yes, I, I had a buoyancy of spirit. <laughs> yes, exactly. That has now been waterlogged <laughs> by all of the content that I mine <laughs> in the present tense. You yeah. have you have mined oh so much content since we last talked. You didn't think about how much content you have produced in the last six and a half years. <laughs> Minutes, words. It, 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 it's not great that when I heard the description of how Bitcoin gets mined <laughs> and I was like, there are environmental negative externalities to this, probably not safe for those in the surrounding environs. I was like, that's how I feel. <laughs> what, what's your version of, uh, of emissions? I mean, man, my wife's probably better suited to answer that question. Um, the degree to which I am bringing the uh, decreasingly slow heat death of of my sanity. Um, no, I, I'm being I'm being extreme. But look, I host a daily podcast at ESPN now. After hosting a daily TV show at ESPN from 2018 to 2020, and now I host another talk show called Debatable on ESPN. That is a uh, conversational talk show with my friend Dominique Foxworth and our other friends, and uh, that has been daily. And so, I have over the last two years definitely done like i don't know 700 episodes of stuff of stuff of of stuff yeah um and then adding tv onto that probably closer to a thousand i don't know man <laughs> <laughs> I, I, i'm saying these numbers and i'm unsettled by them honestly <laughs> 
Yeah, so there was a world in which, and now I remember what I was like in 2016. I was a magazine writer. Well, there was a very specific thing that we were talking about when you were on in May 2016, which was, hey, you're a magazine writer, but I think maybe you're like a TV guy. Mm-hmm. Are you a TV guy? Like that, that was basically, it was like 45 minutes of me being like, are you a TV guy now? <laughs> and how does that interact with your writing? Yes. And that was what it was about. It was about you, the wrestling you were doing with mm-hmm. like where your career was headed and getting pulled toward the screen and away from the page. And at the time, maybe this was the like wide-eyed joie de vie that I was I was referencing. I think that you were hoping that you could have it all. I think that was the plan and the hope was that like little of this, little of that, all of it at like a high level, but the writing will be present. It can't not be present. Oh, th- oh, oh, my sweet, <laughs> sweet joie de vivre. <laughs> um, spoiler alert. Um, no, I mean, look, the incentives of the business are obvious. Um, TV pulled me away from writing. Um, my sensibilities, my appreciation, my taste for it, and I say taste in terms of both like what I like, my discretion, but also like my ability to taste flavors. Um, they still remain. Like I still absolutely, and especially in this podcast job now, I'm constantly reading and consuming more than ever. Um, but the ability for me to live the lifestyle that I'm now, as I talk to you, nostalgic for, in which I'm not making a thousand things over two years, I'm making eight. Yeah. And they are true to the whole premise of why I was on this podcast in the first place. They were long form stories that I got to sort of marinate in, you know, that that became unsustainable, um, the travel, the ability to go away for a while and not live in the daily news cycle. Mm-hmm. And that's the big change is that um, sports has this, you know, we're mixing a million metaphors, but like the gravitational pull of, of what sports is animated by is is definitely in that daily spirit. And so I find myself now trying to resuscitate and and truly, I think, successfully inject a bunch of that sensibility, a magazine sensibility into a daily news approach, which is incredibly difficult, but very rewarding and also exhausting. And I'm trying still, Max. What I'm saying to you is that I now realize I am still believing that I can have it all. And what a fucking moron. Well, I, uh, thanks so much for coming back yeah, on the show. Yeah, it's been good. I feel like we. Uh, it's been good. I feel like I'm gonna. I'm it. gonna just limp out <laughs> yeah. the way that I limped in. You're about to go for a really long walk. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I I have some questions about that balance. Yeah, and one of them is in this daily churn, and I would argue that there are ways in which sports's metabolism has increased so rapidly that it's not even daily anymore it's like hour by hour almost that's that is one million percent correct how do you think about the audience for if not the eight things over two years consumption but that sensibility like who is looking for the off the beaten path slightly deeper dive even if it's just about the game tonight, which is one of the kind of like archetypes of ESPN Daily. It's mm-hmm. like, there's a big event tonight. We're going to go deep on someone who is playing, a coach, whatever. Who's the audience for that? Who like, who who wants it? It's a tricky question because fundamentally the show is for me. <laughs> the show is for somebody who has felt some exhaustion by how sports has become consumed. And what I want to provide is a different way of constructing a diet of sports news. I mean, and even the question of the question of what does sports news even mean? Like the hour to hour, minute to minute Twitter metabolism entails a level of transaction and news bite driven conversation that I do want to avoid. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I want to do a couple of things. One of them is explain stories to people who are like, I don't know what this is, and I would like someone smart to explain it to me. I will find a smart person and have them explain it to you. The other version of it is there are stories that you just don't know about because they don't fit into that 
schedule, right? And this is the magazine approach. And that's where I'm like, I have an open borders policy as a podcast. All are welcome. But I'm specifically appealing to people who want a little bit more of that magazine curation of like, what if I gave you one thing today? And that thing was the thing you needed. And what if that thing is deliberately different from every other way you consume sports? And that's the premise. Is it for hardcore sports fans? No, I am. This is this is this is why this is hard. And I appreciate you pushing on this because it's a show that is there to make sports fans smarter. Sometimes we have guests that are so smart that sports fans who are already very well informed, well versed, will get a lot from it. But at the same time, there is a generalist sensibility. And so we are straddling two things. And that is that is the complexity of a show that is trying to have it all, you know. And so part of me thinks all of the time, right, should we just do this for people who don't know nearly enough about sports and just want the basic level of like, tell me what I can repeat mimic. So when I'm out with my friends, I can seem like I know something about sports. If you listen to our show, you'll absolutely have that. But we're also going to like show to you that the way that sports can be talked about in a deeper way, in a more rigorous way, is actually not that far out of your reach either. And so we're, we're kind of an experiment in that way. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. I think part of the reason I was asking was you did this episode, I can't remember, it must have been last week, with um, Sue Bird. Yes. Who is one of the all-time great WNBA players. And she had just lost her final game in the Western Conference Finals of the WNBA playoffs. It was her last game ever. And the episode you did with her was sort of in two parts. And one of them was this quite deep dive into what the emotional experience of ending your career suddenly, right? She wins that game. They win more, one more. They're in the finals. And you had this whole kind of emotional, psychological, felt kind of like uh, very similar to lots of podcasts that I listen to yes. kind of conversation. Although one that I almost never hear on ESPN, right? Like, mm-hmm. tell me about what your inner life was like in that moment and in the moments that followed. And then the second half of it was like a very straightforward analytical preview of the WNBA finals, like how the matchups were going to work. And like, uh, For, yes, from, from her perspective. And this does, you're right. This is exactly the dance that we do where both parts of me, the guy who is like breaking down games and wants to understand and teach people by being taught myself how to better watch sports is also right there with the person who wants Sue Bird on a therapy couch. And so her perspective as the person who just lost to the team that's now in the finals provided unparalleled (laughs) insight into how to break down this series. But yes, if you were here for just therapy, you were also getting a breakdown of the WNBA finals. Right. I mean, it felt like the first half of the show, if ESPN the magazine still existed, RIP, Yes. The first half of the show would have been a great feature piece profile, like Sue Bird in winter or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know? And then the second half would have been like a five-paragraph dot-com story. Yep, yep. Sue Bird breaks down the WNBA Finals as only she can. Sue Bird's five keys to the WNBA Finals, you know? Uh, And here they were existing in the same show, which seems so interesting to me, but did make me wonder, like, Who's that for? Well, here's the thing. We have to consider, I mean, this is the unifying theory as I talk aloud in a way that I don't really do often about what our show is trying to do explicitly, is that we consider sports important. Like, that's one of the things that I realized. Like, I am genuinely curious and enthusiastic about every show we do. And I say that because I have greenlit the show topic. And if I'm not interested, then why the, why the fuck would anybody else be? And so I feel that. That's, and that's part of the energy that weighs upon me. Is part of that born out of moments where you have said yes to things that you weren't genuinely curious about and then you didn't think those shows worked as well? <laughs> it's definitely because I realize that if I'm not interested, I 
I don't have any expectation that someone also would be. So yes, and and in so in in so many words, yeah, trial and error, and then realizing, okay, if the whole premise of this show is, and this is returning me to the concept of sports news, right? Like I do and must consider the games actually important and interesting. It's kind of like, hey, um, to pull an example, like uh, exit interview with uh, Kamala Harris, right? It's like um, maybe she's on the therapy couch talking to me about her internal monologue after leaving office. But then it's also like, hey, there's also this election happening yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this week. And I, I just feel like it's insane to not ask about that if we consider the sports themselves to be important. Has that if ever been a question for you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because as a magazine writer, like, that's the zag. I'm zagging away from the idea that, oh, these these gamer writers, these beat guys who are covering a baseball team, you know, like, I don't want to live that life at all. These games, I'm above that. I am I am seeking art, you know? And, and what I realized in the daily show format is that, Absolutely, you can sense that level of condescension, probably, just because of what I'm interested in. Why are we doing so many magazine-centric stories? Um, Why are we doing an hour-long episode today about the Munich Games in 72 and the massacre of Israeli Olympians and the story of the one guy, the one Holocaust survivor who lived through that? And now we're going to tell the story of the horrors of the 20th century. Why are we doing that story on a Friday before an NFL weekend? It's because of that guy who wants to make art. But at the same time, if I'm presented with a Sue Bird and the finals are going on, I'm like, I also think that it says something that our show, and this is maybe particular to the WNBA, that our show considers that sport important. Mm -hmm. That that sport gets covered with rigor and enthusiasm in the way that, man, if I had... Tom Brady on here and the Super Bowl was happening, I would also ask him about that as well as why he currently looks like a real housewife. <laughs> Do you think you could get Tom Brady on the therapy couch? <laughs> I'd like to try. I'd like to try. Um, but I also feel like the number of jokes I've made about him. <laughs> like this is the other part of this job, Max, where I'm like guy taking, and by that I mean giving takes, and guy doing like journalism. It's a, it's a weird Google search if you're a subject of mine who then finds out what did this guy say about me over possibly 800 episodes over the last two years <laughs> of various things. Right. I mean, it's just like um, just by sheer take math, the odds are pretty good that you, you've had a take. Undoubtedly. And, and my, my saving grace is that um, the haystack <laughs> is just so massive that you're not going to find that needle. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Do the um, do the bad takes stick with you? Mm. Do you remember the bad takes? <sighs> Honestly, there's only one genre of bad take that I've given, and I believe it to be a good take. So probably not. <laughs> <laughs> For years, that is classic take guy talk. <laughs> no, I would I would routinely on around the horn, which is the show that sort of baptized me into sports talking. 
I, I would routinely pick a 16 seed to win a game in the NCAA tournament, which had not ever happened. Mm-hmm. And I would do this literally every year since I got on the show. And then, of course, I would get muted, penalized. It's a, for those unfamiliar with Around the Horns, oeuvre. Um, their point is a game show kind of conceit. I would, I would lose you know, points and points. I, I would be destroyed for it. Um, and then... <laughs> the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, I believe, UMBC, won. They became the first 16 seed ever a couple years ago to win. And I picked a different 16 seed. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, wow, that's probably the worst take I've ever had. And yet. And yet. I was so ahead of this curve. I was I was vindicated while also being docked literally like minus 300 points, a number I did not think could fit onto the around the horn score like bug in the corner of the screen. Do you hear from people about takes? I will say that it's not so much that they have hit me up saying, I heard what you said, but people that I have followed and vice versa, like mutually following each other on Twitter, have definitely unfollowed me. After my suspicion is like tweeting about them or talking about them too much. Mm -hmm. So for instance, I am ESPN's number one Ben Simmons, like, apologist chronicler. And for NBA nerds, you get immediately why that's a fraught position. It's pathetic that I'm now going to talk about this. But I was like, oh, Ben unfollowed me recently. And I'm like, yeah, I did. I did kind of. It's weird. It's weird. It's weird to notice that. But I also think that it probably came from a place of I'm taking a lot about him. (laughs) And I've become critical at times, and it's just not, yeah, it, it, it's, it's one of those kind of dynamics. Have you, um, have you turned on Ben Simmons? I've become slightly more critical, um, still very much the number one booster of him. Um, but I, I would say that it's just hard not to imagine that the sheer tonnage of opinions I've expressed about him, whether it's about, um, you know, the serious, like mental health and performance anxiety, because he famously, infamously, really like refused to shoot in the postseason, which I found fascinating, and also became like this huge story that led him to leave the Sixers, go to Brooklyn, and then become part of this team full of other guys, by the way, that I unquestionably do like um, criticize and make fun of and talk about in the same breath. Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, like he's on that team now, and it's like, okay, this is. A very, yeah, it's, it's a very uh, volatile stew of opinions and reports and me just talking a lot. And in part because I feel like for you in particular, because of your like arc at ESPN, you have sort of carved out these pieces of real estate, which are often very connected to individual people. So you were the Jeremy Lin guy. Yeah during Lynn Sanity. You were the process guy with Sam Henke and the Sixers. Another allegedly bad take that definitely was great. I'm with you on that <laughs> one. I'm, I, I, um, your, your support of the process be- was always right. I'm becoming insufferable, Max. Thank you for co-signing me. I'm interested in how you think about those pieces of real estate and whether they are premeditated, opportunistic decisions, whether they happen in real time and suddenly you are the Jeremy Lin guy or the process guy or the Ben Simmons guy, like there's a level of career calculation in how you navigate a place like ESPN, where you see open real estate, what you run at. And then I imagine that there's an element of just like sort of dumb luck and timing. And I wonder how those two have talked to each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, let's just explain how the economy of ESPN or sports media works, right? Like, there are hobby horses that are very useful, profitable, like hating the Dallas Cowboys. Stephen A. Smith, like riding in on a literal horse wearing a Cowboys jersey. Like, (laughs) that is the apex of what we're talking about. The most (laughs) popular team being um, routinely destroyed by a man who is... Yeah, at the top of our ecosystem, like that, like that's that's sort of the north star in some ways. Um, but the point is, like for me, it's funny. Like those stories in specific, like it started with um, a truly anonymous Harvard college basketball player and the team that lost more than any other in NBA history. 
And when I got those stories and they started from the magazine perspective, in no way was I like, this is a hill I'm eventually going to want to die on. (laughs) But then (laughs) after you go through and you report it dispassionately and then you realize like, wait a minute, I'm like either the person with access or I'm the person who has this perspective that feels not fully alone, but lonely, especially with the process in the Sixers nationally, where everyone's just shitting on them and no one had really any idea what they were doing. I was like, oh, I'm going to end up in the Sixers case, officiating a wedding of Sixers fans at a lottery party in front of like 2,000 people in Philadelphia before a Sixers game. And I don't think the Columbia School of Journalism would have this as a stop on the timeline of what professional journalists tend to do. And so, yeah, I fully leaned in and became a priest of the process. And it's absurd and also something where I'm like, but this is also, this is where sports and news are not the same. Mm-hmm. Like, it'd be weird if I was also Kamala Harris's campaign manager. Yeah, that feels different. I guess my question is, you know, in the six years that we have talked, your career has evolved in what, from my vantage point, really interesting ways. And I want to talk about the experience of High Noon, too, because I yeah. feel like... Um, you and I were also talking about you coming on like right before it launched. Then you were like, actually, let's let's do it like once oh we're, once it's out. Right. And then it was out and like it was really busy. And you were like, I, I feel like we're like figuring it out. Like let's let's figure it out. And then like the time slot got moved and it got shortened. Mm-hmm. And then you were like, I don't know, I don't really. It's in an interesting place. And then it was over. Yep. And we never got to talk about it. So I want to talk about High Noon sure. too. But I want to just push on this idea of like running at those stories and planting flags and how premeditated that is for you. Like I'm genuinely interested in whether it feels random or planned to you. You know what I mean? I think you, you, you pivot once the opportunity presents itself. So I don't go searching for hobby horses or bits even that's the most like cold and cynical way of seeing these takes as like just bits I can return to that are good for the shows that I'm on. Um, I see it as there's an opportunity here to be the guy on something. And I think there are people to be clear who are far more cunning and successful at becoming the guy who does X or Y or Z. For me, I pride myself on that. It's never been inorganic, but believe me when someone is like, you're our guy. Um, will you come marry us? I'm jumping at that opportunity. Um, when Jeremy and the insanity thing, right, where I'm like covering him and I have access to his parents um, and every tabloid writer in New York is like, as well as national publication people, as I learned years later, were like, why the fuck is Pablo Torre at SI the only person covering the biggest story in sports right now? Um I take pride in, okay, like, oh, no, this is clearly a thing that I will be in literally now multiple documentaries about. And I don't see it from the perspective of there is profit at the end of that rainbow. It's just that authority on a subject in a world that is so fragmented (laughs) and in which there are only so many stories that resonate vis-a-vis the Cowboys dynamic, like the NFL is a good place to go pick a hobby horse. Um, I tend to want to be smart about, oh, come to me for your take on this insofar as that presents itself to me. And then do you start thinking of yourself as like a, you know, like a quilt? (laughs) A tapestry. Yeah. Yeah. Like a take tapestry. That's the most elegant way of describing just like the, um, it's almost sort of like one of those booths where people like uh, have a giant fan at the bottom and there's money. (laughs) <laughs> you need to grab it. <laughs> it's like, yeah, a tapestry. And not that. Definitely not that. A tapestry. Well, I mean, I feel like your uh, your shitty metaphor after my shitty metaphor <laughs> does bring up the actual, like, <laughs> elephant in the room, which is, like, this is also a question about medium, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, there's an opportunity in writing. You started as a fact checker at SI. You found ways to write a feature. The first one that you wrote was a called How Athletes Go Broke. 
it is like one of the most popular stories in the history of Sports Illustrated. Yeah. Uh, Probably still the most popular story I've ever written to this day, which is a little sad. Because <laughs> it was like actually the first one. Yeah, just the first big bonus piece and still like pops up all the time on Reddit, which is a currency that I, I clearly value. <laughs> it's part of your tapestry. Yes. But you were like, you were a writer, man. When when you and I talked the first time, it was like you were a writer who started to do TV. And now, six and change years later, you are a TV guy that's doing audio. Mm-hmm. And I wonder about how, A, those changes have felt to you in the same way that like running at the opportunity to marry two Sixers fans feels. Like, is it just like, this is the next thing that has presented itself and it feels like the right move? And then, and then B, uh, to put us back in the uh, booth with the fan and the money flying around, like, how much of that is about the economics of being a writer versus being a TV guy? And, and then how does audio fit into that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have a couple of, um, you know, mentor is such an overused word, um, but I have a couple of people that I have I've listened to who have walked paths very similar. And all of them started off as, like, my favorite writers who then abandoned writing to go play and do TV and, and radio in the case of Tony Kornheiser or Dan Lebetard or all of these like guys who made that choice, a choice that is naked. Like, Tony Kornheiser wrote a book, one, not his first book, but one of his later ones that, that was simply titled, I'm Back for More Cash. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that naked about it, <laughs> but let's be honest about like where the incentives are, where the carrots are at the end of which sticks. And that is not to say that I have devalued writing. I, I still believe it is the hardest thing, the most satisfying thing, the thing that is most fulfilling. Still, to me, is writing, hitting a home run on a magazine story. But in terms of like, what am I incentivized to do as a person who wants to actually have a career that spans a long amount of time in this business that is changing and icebergs seem to be melting all around me, just great chaos... Absolutely. I'm a practically minded person. And if magazines paid me what TV paid me like, I'm not saying that there's a world in which I definitely wouldn't still be a magazine writer. You know, like, I think there would be there's a part of me that absolutely still fantasizes about being left alone to report. Can we talk about High Noon for a second? Yeah. This is uh, counterintuitive, but I, I actually, if you don't mind, can you tell the story of how you found out it was ending? Yeah, man. Um, So it is February 24th, 2020. And I am at work at the seaport. And I had just left makeup. And I am (laughs) painted and in a whatever top half like jacket, bottom half, whatever it is. Maybe it was shorts. Maybe it was athletic pants or whatever. But I'm ready to do the show. And... I get a call um, <laughs> outside of makeup, and it's my wife, Liz, and she says, um, I'm going into labor. <laughs> you know, at a certain point, it dawned on me, like, I am not the movie character, like, about to be a dad guy that I was hoping I would be. <laughs> because my response is to be like, I'm about to do this show. Should I still do this show? I'm like, oh, no, oh, oh. everybody around me, Bomani, my producers are like, you need to leave. <laughs> I'm like, are you sure it's like the labor labors? I'm like, I'm, I'm the worst. And so I run home, get in an Uber, um, pick up Liz, get in, a, get in an Uber SUV. Hey, um, cause I, you know, classy. Yeah. I have the phone booth with the fan. Like this is why I grabbed all that, that money. Anyway, people are wondering how does this result in the show getting canceled? Um, the point is I get to the hospital, Liz gives birth and it's all overwhelming and all of that. But, um, while I'm there, you know, um, a New York post story comes out and says, you know, high noon is not getting renewed, blah, 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 show getting canceled. Something that I, certainly was like in the back of my mind like ready to be announced at some point like I wasn't like shocked as in like oh my god this is totally out of left field but it happened literally like while my daughter Violet was entering the world and so February 24th 2020 was the day my daughter was born the day my show went away and the day that 
I remember Liz reading a headline on her phone in like the uh, maternity ward saying like, uh, what's the coronavirus? (laughs) (laughs) And so all of this shit happened at once. And the upshot of it, Max, is that like my show goes away, but so does everyone else's show for Mm -hmm. like a long ass time. And so the end of the show in that way also was just very surreal and also kind of unconsummated. Like the exit coincided with everyone's shows disappearing and then us just not coming back. Right. It was not so much like a, oh, there's a big farewell, like there's a bit, you know, or whatever it would be like an obvious thing. It was just kind of like, it was, it was sort of caught in the tide of the larger world radically changing. I can't tell from the way you're talking about it whether that was a good thing or a bad thing. I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, I think it was ultimately a good thing um, because it removed the um, the FOMO <laughs> of like all these people are still at work doing TV, giving takes, and I'm here not. Um, it was almost like if paternity leave wasn't a big enough signal that you need to stop work right now we're also going to yeah have this all coincide with this global pandemic and also um everyone else's show is going away and so it was it was it was a soft landing in that sense um but it was also just like a time in my life that i truly consider an enormously confusing blur that prevented me from actually grappling with the feelings i would have had absent all of those things happening simultaneously the ending being an enormously confusing. Yeah, closure. Time yeah, closure with this thing <laughs> that I that I love that we poured our our whole lives into. Was doing the show confusing? Well, the show was called High Noon Live uh, for a reason, and then it shifted to you know four p.m. Eastern noon, like in Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> And so, you know, it was it was weird and confusing in that way. Um, But also just the premise changed where it was like a show designed to have smart, digressive, open conversations live to a show that was a lot more like the sort of factory floor, like 30 minutes taped. Here's a rundown and there's less opportunity for spontaneity. And that changed the dynamic of the show. It changed the dynamic between me and Bomani. It changed so many things when the real estate changes. And so I still loved doing it. But it also was clear by that point that it's not going to be the same thing that you thought it would be. And I, I truly, by the way, harbor no ill will towards ESPN. Like I am a I've been there now for 10 years. Like none of this is scandalizing or woe is me. It is simply just the mechanics of how you make television. And once you change those variables, you're going to get a different product. The premise for High Noon, an hour-long extemporaneous discussion between two people, that was also pushing the boundaries of what you can do on TV. Yes. that, That was an ambitious idea. Do you think that it worked? I think that it worked in a way that I am so proud of. I would be so naive to argue that it was a success in the ways that it needed to be. You know, like, I wish that more people saw it. I wish that it grew more. I wish that X, Y, and Z. But in terms of the editorial vision of that hour-long show live, I went back recently and watched just our first episode. And, And Tony Kornheiser, I keep on bringing him up, but he watched that show. He is so stingy with compliments and is so critical of everything and called me and just said, oh, you guys should take over PTI. Like that's, that's, he he had that sense after watching one episode and I kind of agreed. (laughs) I was like, yeah, I think we got something special here. And then, you know, fast forward and, and yeah, the way the show changes, I think makes that, it, it changes the whole proposition of everything. Does it change the way you think about taking ambitious swings? Um, no, no, no. Um, I, I think an ambitious swing is kind of the only swing I find um, truly rewarding. 
Um, and I say that in terms of like what we're trying to do with ESPN Daily, um, what we're even trying to do with Debatable in terms of like, here is this thing that comes out every day. How can we make it different? Right. Like, I just don't think that my lane and this is not even like a, a grandiose artistic sensibility thing. This is just a like, where do I add value? Like, why would someone want to watch this instead of the million other things? It's because, well, we have some ambition as to how to do this differently. And it's not difference for difference's sake, but it's like, what would I want to watch and be a part of? And I do pride myself still on that, even if I have like scar tissue that never fully got like bandaged up. I have two more questions about Heine and then yeah. I'll, I'll move on. One of them is the like relationship between you and Bomani became this thing that was getting like reported on. It was like a public thing. You guys were were very close friends on the show. Started the sort of premise of the show was like, let's take a friendship that isn't on TV and put it on TV, basically. Mm-hmm. Was, at least that's how I remember you like yeah, explaining yeah, yeah, yeah. it to me. Yeah. What was it like to have people writing about your relationship with your friend who you were hosting a TV show with? I mean, so much of this happened like after the show went away. And so I got to sort of ingest this um, from a particular remove. I think while doing the show, if it had happened, it would have been very uncomfortable. Um, But in the end, I was like, I get it. (laughs) Like, how could I, person writing about other people's interior monologues and dynamics not be subject to this if people somewhere found it interesting? Um, I get it. Um, It's uncomfortable because I'm also just a person who is going to protect my friend, even if that friendship has changed. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm just not going to be that guy. Um, I'm going to be the person who wants to... I want to remember this show as something that I remain proud of. The dynamic of, like, a television friendship changing a real-life friendship, I don't know a dynamic on television where that has not happened. Mm-hmm. I would say that for us, it did happen. But it's not something that has particular drama to it where there's some great untold story. It's actually kind of mundane. It's kind of like I moved in with a really good friend and and this happened to me literally in life. It's like, and that changed us. Yeah. Because of real estate, because of ego, because of what our sense of what our best selves would be and how we were not being able to be that. And so in the end... We went off and got to be versions of ourselves that I think are closer to what professionally we wanted to be, even though it wasn't our choice. Like the show going away enabled us to go and pursue more personal, individualized pursuits. And was there anything about getting written about like that that made you feel any differently about writing about other people that way? It made me more sensitive to it because it's uncomfortable and because it's it's something that, you know, look. Did you start unfollowing people? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, look, the show. by the way, the show that we made, it's a story of not just me and Bo, but like a whole staff of people. Yeah. And so there's there's I, I, the whole thing of like, what about what did I become sensitive to? I I also became sensitive to just like truly to our own business. Like, here are a bunch of people who are working with us, you know, like, and they don't have the same, like, fallback plans in every case. Like, I became sensitive to that. And, and, and so, but the notion of, like, oh, this is what it feels like to have a loss <laughs> dissected and analyzed and pried into, um, you know, Max, if I can be just very blunt about something, like, as a journalist, right, as someone who interviews people professionally, as both of us do, if you were told that, I know you literally had your dad uh, on your show on uh, 70 Over 70, but if you were being told like, hey, um, hey, Max, son, I got a call from this reporter and he wants to sit me down. Like, what do you think I should do? I would tell my dad, do not do that. <laughs> and so I, I, I just have that reinforced in me that like there is a double standard here that we employ when it comes to like asking for transparency, but then urging opacity when it comes to stuff that's close to our own heart. I mean, one of the things that's funny, I feel like you're in a different place because 
of your uh, varied career by medium. But a thing that happens on this show pretty often is that the audio people that I interview are the most uncomfortable <laughs> with this dynamic because they're not in control of like what's going to happen to the final thing, which they're very, very used to. Mm. Uh, it happens all the time. The audio people are very, very uncomfortable being the subject of an interview when literally all they do all day <laughs> is ask people very personal questions. That's right. Yeah, I, I feel that. I feel that in me now, actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I'm going to ask you some more personal <laughs> questions. I actually have one very uh, potentially like uh, slightly uncomfortable yeah. personal question that I have been wanting to ask because I heard you say this thing in an interview, and it uh, it stuck with me, and I wanted to ask you about it, which is you said, I don't know what my real voice is anymore. Mm. I think I say tongue-in-cheekly, but also definitely with this river of sincerity, um, just like coursing through it. Um, I think about this all the time when I listen to myself. And I'm like, am I too enthusiastic right now? <laughs> I just said before to you that I'm enthusiastic about everything. Yeah. That's insane. What an insane thing. Every episode I do, I'm enthusiastic and energetic. Um, how much am I amping that up? And to what extent am I even now unaware that that's even happening? Like consciously or habitually. Um, I consider myself, you know, um, and this is not something I'm prideful of, but like a little bit of a mimic. And I say that because when I talked about like what's what, 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 what's my taste in anything? Well, it's like I figured out, oh, I like this. How can I be more like the people whose careers I've kind of modeled myself after in, in varying ways? How can I write like this person? I once did a story in a creative writing seminar in college that was literally structurally like a copy of a Gary Smith story in which I wrote, Max, in the second person. <laughs> you are blank. You are blank. It's just like I, I, that's how I sort of found something approximating what I could consider a comfort zone. Um, but I think that's part of like my whole thing of like, what is my real voice? Well, I'm kind of performing my own idea of what someone who is good at these jobs sounds like. And so do I pride myself on sounding like a person with authority who may be more insecure about his take than he lets on? Yeah. And am I operating with full transparency about everything? Absolutely not. <laughs> and so I want to get to authenticity as this North Star, but I don't think I'm there yet. Not in the way that I'm fully satisfied by. Do you think it's possible? Like, is that... Is that an actual goal of yours? So I, I don't think the, exp I mean, insofar as, and I have a very, my degree of, and I'm going to use the scariest scare quotes, air quotes here, um, of celebrity <laughs> that I have is so particular that it's like, it's both small enough for me to be totally um, unbothered by any amount of like, walking outside, sitting on a bench alone, eating a sandwich, being unmolested, just like great, perfect, optimal. But it's also showed me that like, I have enough celebrity where I'm like, I actually don't want to tell everybody everything. To go back to what you asked me before about like, what did going through being written about feel like? Yeah, no, like I'm not going to ever be that person who's like, guess what the inside of this kimono looks like? <laughs> like no, no, no. It's even a, this is, a, I mean, this is, even talking to you about this is kind of pushing the envelope in that way, to me. Yeah. You're feeling uncomfortable? Um, I feel like I've psyched myself into discomfort. <laughs> I started off very comfortable, and now I'm like, oh, no. I think that just means I did a bad job, man. No, 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 I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about how stressful this has become. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. Well, I got a stressful question for you. Okay. And then I really will let you go, and, and this discomfort can end. Okay. Which is your contract with ESPN's up next year. Mm -hmm. uh, do you have a sense of what the next moves are? I mean, this is kind of connected to the stuff I was pushing on before about premeditation versus yeah taking yeah. what doors open. Yeah. So I'll answer your question by first referring to a thing that happened to me in high school. <laughs> Sorry. 
I'm like, what a cliche. To understand this, you have to go back to, like, uh, what a podcast cliche. Yeah, you really are a podcaster now. Um, Before I answer that, let's go back. But I would read the yearbook, and I'd find the kids who are graduating, the ones I admired. I'd look at what they had done on their page, and they'd be like, oh, they did this, this, and this. They did the debate team. They got these academic awards. They did all of that. And I would literally write it down (laughs) into a notebook saying, in X number of years, I want to do this, this, and this to get to where I want to be. Okay. And so not and not a strategy I would advocate. <laughs> it seems unhealthy um, when I say it. But I was so like that. And this career, and I say this authentically, this career is a result of me trying to do that, taking the LSAT, bombing the LSAT, realizing that the thing that was most epitomizing failure in my mind was the thing that wound up opening the door to the phone booth with the money flying around and this minor degree of celebrity and these journalistic projects that I actually do love and care about. And if not for that, I never would have done any of it. Seriously, no part of me would have done sports media or media in general. I would have been a lawyer. And so what I try to remind myself of when it comes to like making these plans now is that stop trying to choreograph where this trajectory is going to go. All I really know is that I want the swings six and a half years from now to have been even bigger. I feel like there are things I don't feel like I've figured out what my real voice is yet, despite people now having a catalog of me attempting to find that. That's staggering. Um, for better and for worse, Um, but also because I just think there are things out there that I want to do that will test whether I'm as good as I secretly think I am, and I want to find out. Well, that's a good ending. (laughs) Max, thank you for bringing me at the very end back to my comfort zone. Pablo, thank you for doing this, man. Thank you, Max. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lemmer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week was Seth Kelly. Thanks to him. Thanks to Megan Valley, who handled the show notes. Thanks to our friends at Vox, with whom we make the show. And thanks to Pablo Torre. His podcast is ESPN Daily. You can listen to it daily. We'll see you next week. Support for Long Form this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier.